humans, leading humans towards the future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thank you so much for dedicating the next half hour-ish of your one precious life to listen to this episode, and I do not think you will regret it. So my guest in this episode is the lovely, basically, Greg Reed, who is now the CEO of Places for People, which is the UK's biggest social enterprise, which is managing assets of nearly five billion quid. So nice to know that social enterprises can grow that big. He is a phenomenal storyteller and he's a lot of fun. So I genuinely cannot wait to hear and share his stories with you. But before I do, I wanted to thank you for your feedback. I do love to hear from you. And I appreciate your thoughts and your suggestions and your advice. I wonder as well, because of some of the things I've heard over the last couple of weeks, has listening to this podcast changed the way that you lead? Has it helped you to understand how a corporation can be and how culture is not set in stone? It is something that you can keep improving. If any of these have run, you know, run true for you, then I would love to hear your story because your feedback is just really important to me. It gives me energy. And I know for me, every single conversation has at least one thing that I then put into action. So for me, the last over the last year, it's changed the way that I lead and think about leadership. So I'd love to hear from you. Of course, if you know somebody that you think is an imaginal leader who deserves to have her own episode of Humans Needing Humans, then please do reach out and suggest away. People who send me suggestions for leaders of startups, that's not what this particular podcast is about. It's about leading in really complex, large organizations. So thank you for your suggestions, but they're not right for this particular podcast. This is about how behavioral science can help leaders to drive success in big, complex organizations. So how do you reach out to me? Well, you can head over to catskeely.com and there you can sign up also to the Humans Leading Humans newsletter, which is few and far between. All of you people, we've now got a thousand people subscribed to our newsletter, which is really exciting. So basically, they are fairly few and far between, and they're an opportunity for me to kind of update you with the, the stories of Beep and the work, work we're doing with our partners. Uh, also, Frontline Live, which is the charity that I run and love, a passion, passion project um, with a bunch of amazing, amazing other leaders who give their time for free. Or you can head over to wearebeep.com to find out more about how we help leaders to succeed by shifting mindsets, attitudes, behaviors, or because it's you, dear listener, 
And because I trust you, if you have something you want to say to me, just email me at cats at wearebeep.com because I love to get your emails. Okay, so if you're sitting comfortably, get ready to meet the lovely Greg Reed. Greg! I am so, so, so delighted that you've agreed to be a guest on Humans Leading Humans. Um, so we've only just met. We met through the phenomenal Sophie Devonshire, who listeners, you will know all about by now. So I haven't got much to say about how we met, apart from I already know from our brief conversations that you are a storyteller too and understand the, the power of stories. So, Greg, do you want to tell the listeners, how did you get to where you are? Sure. Just to give a bit of context on me, I, I currently run the, the UK's largest social enterprise, Places for People. We uh, have about 11,000 staff. We have a million customers in and out of our properties over a week. We've got a housing association. We have leisure centers. Um, we have investment funds that are socially focused. So all kinds of exciting things. And sort of how did I get to hear from a small town in Delaware? Uh, it's a very long story, but I will, um, I'll, I'll speed it up for you. So went to school, got, you know, I was, got my undergraduate degree. I was on my way to being a lawyer. I was in law school. That sort of had always been a destiny for me. I'd always thought I wanted to be a lawyer, um, you know, do a little bit of social justice and save the world maybe. And when I was in school, obviously, I started really experiencing what, what it might be like and what the, what the, the craft might entail. And um, it's a very long degree in America getting through law school. So it's, you know, it's seven years after you finished high school. So a lot was going on. I started working uh, in a bank called MBNA um, in the mornings and at night. And then I was going to school in the middle. Um, because um, you know, I didn't come from the kind of background where we had money for school, so I had to pay for it myself. And along the way, I really realized that I was really enjoying going to work in the call center uh, and working at MBNA a lot more than I was enjoying um, what I thought I was going to be when I was a lawyer. So the sort of where did I get, you know, and how did I get here? It really just started with um, me having an honest conversation with my family, with my wife. Um, and really, um, the other person who supported me was my grandmother, uh, and, and just sort of saying, you know, Hey, I don't think this is what I want to do. I want to do something else. And then they're like, what is it you want to do? And I'm like, well, I think I might like working in this bank. Um, I, I, you know, they seem to be really customer focused. It's very exciting. Um, you know, they, they do lots in the community. I just, I just liked everything about it. And, as you can imagine, there were lots of people in my family or who knew me who thought I was insane because I was just finishing law school. And it, you know, I was right at the end of this big journey. Um, and so I got my, my Juris doctor and just decided I was going to keep working at the bank. And really how I got to where I got started there with, with two people just saying, um, you're a good person, you work hard, be happy, you know, carry on, go for it, you know, and we're here for you. And then, you know, MBNA took me to, to the UK where I worked uh, in, for Chester for them. Then I was um, at uh, RBS for a little bit. 
I moved from law to marketing to finance, you know, as a finance director, all kinds of weird things. Um, I ended up at HomeServe UK, which was a, a, you know, more of an operational business with insurance attached. I ended up as the CEO of that. And really, um, you know, eventually it, um, yeah, I, I'd had enough as many execs do. And I, my time had sort of come to an end there. And I had that period where you can think about what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And then, um, you know, places for people and their huge sort of social focus and purpose um, came along. I met the board, they swept me off my feet and uh, I've been with them for seven months and it's, you know, the best decision I've ever made. And I really feel uh, very excited to be, you know, making a difference. And yeah, yeah, it's funny. So, so basically the thread that runs throughout your life is the feeling that you want to make a positive difference. Exactly. And I, you know, it, it, when, when we, talk later, you know, I always made a difference in what I was doing, but, you know, a lot of times in banking, I'm rationalizing what we're doing, but making it better than, um, you know, other people might do it or making it better to work there. So I was always trying to make things a bit better. Um, I, I think I've really jumped now to the, I'm going to change a few things, um, you know, positively for people versus just sort of tinkering around the edges on better. And this is the thing, isn't it? I keep getting across to people that you don't have to necessarily be working at a social enterprise to be making the world a better place. You can do that wherever you are. Every organisation that you're in, just by making people feel better. And I know that's what you do, Greg, because Sophie's told me all about you. <laughs> um, you can make the world a better place from wherever you are, for whatever you're doing, just mm -hmm. by making sure you're doing the right things by people. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, I never was shy. And, and that's why I love, you know, the business that I'm in now, because you know, we've got, got about a billion pounds in turnover. Um, and if I can make a lot of money out of that, I can do a lot of good things with that because I don't have a shareholder um, and I can put it right back into society. Love your story. Absolutely love, love your story and uh, resonates with me on so many levels because there's hasn't been a job that I've done where I haven't been aware of the fact that actually my key role no matter what I was doing, of course, it's to make more money and to be profitable and effective. But really, it's about making sure that you make things better and mm. that the rest of it happens by nature. So I passed you the CREATE framework. What did that make you feel? Oh, well, it, I think it validates a lot of the things that, um, you know, I've done um, over the years. And so when I, when I went through, I looked at the framework looked at the words and there were quite a few that, you know, really resonated with me and really are part of the messaging that, um, you know, I give my team uh, and, the, and the whole company really on what it's going to feel like to work at PFP. Um, and so um, I thought, I thought it was great. I thought it looked really useful. Um, and, and it was sort of, you know, there's, that's one of those things where you can't look at any of those words and go, oh, that's, that's terrible. But, you know, there are certain ones on there, empathy, trust, integrity, authenticity that, you know, really resonate with me. And it's strange when we do the culture audits, how many of those words, which are completely common sense, they're the things that make people feel good and therefore more productive. But it's amazing how many times you go through a cultural audit and people score really low on so many of those pillars. And yeah. you're wondering, why can't we win and keep, why can't we win and keep talent? Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't think there's enough talk 
in um, in the boardroom and in exec meetings about how people feel. There's there's a there's a lot of metrics and a lot of what's and and then maybe once a year someone does a survey and then and then they they look at it. But I do think you know well if you work for me it's something that we talk about every every, every meeting every time and there's always always something you can do to to think about how uh, you know your team were feeling um, and really usually those things are. You know, they're not always work related. You know, so there's a lot of things going on in society now that we're very concerned about and trying to make sure our people feel okay and know that they're supported. Um, and they really got nothing to do with us. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, you know, and, and we're back to the empathy piece. It's just like, just figure out where people are. Start from there. I can't wait for your stories because I know you're uh, a storyteller. What's your story number one? Okay. Well, it's really impossible to work with me and not hear me go on and on about doing the right thing and about taking time to do the right thing and about how it's not always obvious. It's not always easy. And everyone sort of says that that's something they do or they think that's something they do. And everyone's like, yeah, of course that is. But it is really hard um, sometimes to put, you know, the, the long term you know, future for people and to do the right thing and to sort of put the short term aside and explain to someone, okay, this is why we're doing this. Um, and so you really, you really have to balance that. And I, someone who was lucky enough to learn that at a very, very young age, my, um, my grandfather was really, really important to me. My, my parents were, were young when they had me. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. So I, I think I matured quickly as a youngster. And um, my grandfather was a really, really important figure in my life. And I can remember um, when I was growing up, he was a farmer and I would ride in that big pickup truck with him on the big bench seat. And he, you know, he'd be over there way on one side and I'd be way on the other side. And, um, you know, you were just always going and doing something. It was always something fun. And I can remember we were going once to a family event and I don't really know what it was, but it was at a place in America, it was, it was at a place called um, an American Legion, just like a veterans club. And they would sort of hold events there in the, um, um, and you could rent out the venue and you would have your little event. So it must've been someone's like big birthday or maybe even a wedding or whatever, but either way, I was really excited. And we're going along and it's summertime and I can remember the windows are down and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's probably about August and it's very, very hot in America and it's sweaty and we, we pull into the car park and it's not paved and it's grass and you kind of roll in and you roll across the grass and, and you know, you jump out and I'm, I'm walking in with them, just very excited. And I see this car and I know whose car it is and that's my uncle's car and I see that the lights are on. And I'm really, really excited. And I just sort of say, oh, Joey's left this lights on, I'm going to turn them off. And I don't know if you remember when you're like, these times when, you know, cars were unlocked and you could leave the lights on, which seems kind of weird these days. Um, you know, and I was maybe like eight or nine years old. Um, and I can remember going over to this big car. It was a, it was a big GTO and opening the door, enormous door, big click sound. Again, another big giant leather bench seat. And I could see uh, that the lights were on because you could see the switch was pulled out. And I can remember, you know, pushing the switch in that little, there's a little sound used to make it when it went in, a little smooth sound and, and slamming the door and then looking around and my grandfather was gone. And so he hadn't stayed to see the miracle of me turning off the lights, which I was, you know, pretty impressed with at my age that I knew how to do it. Um, and so I ran and I caught up with him and we were just about ready to go in, into the, the American Legion. And I looked up at him and I said, oh, we need to tell Uncle Joey. 
I could tell like his face, he got really cross with me. And he looked at me and he said, why do we need to tell Joey? And I said, well, I just, I turned his lights off. He left his lights on. And he just said to me, did you do it because you wanted credit? And I said, no, I, no, didn't, that wasn't, no, that wasn't the reason. And he was like, no, that's why I did it. He says, you know, if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, it becomes the wrong thing. And just turn the lights off and you don't oh. need to tell Joey anything. And that's been a guiding principle in my life ever since then of just constantly, if I see something that needs doing, I do it. If someone has to know, I will tell them because maybe they needed to know, but generally no one knows. Um, I just go along trying to do the right thing. And as, as, you know, as a father, as a, as a friend, um, as a husband, as, um, uh, you know, an executive, that's sort of how I lead my life. And when I sort of manage my teams and coach my teams, um, you know, this story and this sort of message is something they hear uh, right up front and it really guides everything else that comes after it. And that, there is a fine balance there. So as I'm listening to you, agreed, you do things because they're the right thing to do, but there's also a human need and a response that happens when we are recognized. Yeah. Rewarded for doing the right thing. So how do you how do you embed that across a company, a complex company where often people aren't rewarded and recognized anyway? I, I think it's fine to reward and recognize people when you see it as a leader, you know, so um, I'm on that all the time. And, you know, uh, particularly like in our internal social media, I will tell my exec team who, you know, are a bit older and they don't really know how to do these things. I say, hey, here's what you do. It's called a humble brag. Go in there and thank your team for something great they've done. And oh, by the way, they're your team and I'll know you've done it too. And, you know, so there are, there are ways to, to do these things. I mean, you definitely should recognize people when they've done something, but whether you need to tell someone you've done the right thing or not, I think is, is a much different thing. It's easy for someone like me. And I'll tell you, you do get paid back eventually, uh, you know, in ways that you know, when they remind you in ways that they've helped them. I, I, you know, I like to raise money for different things. And, and I saw an email because it got back to me that my chief of staff had sent out to people. And one of the things she said in it is, has Greg done one of these things where he's helped you and he's not told us all. And, uh, and, you, and you know, he's helped you. This is a time when you can help a cause that he cares about. And, you know, so that's credit back to me. So it made me feel really warm and nice when I read that, that that's what people might think. Um, But, you know, that's luckily someone else said that and I didn't, so I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) That is a fantastic uh, tip. And I think it's much, much deeper than it sounds. Mm -hmm. And it's making my brain buzz about whether or not Mm -hmm. I do that. Well, do I ask for praise? Do I do something? And I, yeah, that's fascinating. It's a great feeling to do the right thing and not say anything. And you can really feel good about that. You can feel fantastic about that, you know, in, in, in your heart, in your own way. And you, and especially in a role like mine, I can nudge along and help many, many people. And it doesn't have to be, well, Greg helped them. That's how they got that. Got that. They can, they can keep that for themselves. So. I'm also thinking as you're talking that one of the things that I've noticed, and it's a huge stereotype, is that I've often watched women, particularly, and not just women, um, that do a hell of a lot and never really bring it to a meeting. You know, they're quite happy for somebody else to actually take the the credit for what they've done. 
And so I've often said, you need to take, you have to take, you have to be more forthright about what you've put in. So again, how do you, how do you balance your brilliant tip? And it is a brilliant tip with the fact that other people will seek recognition and will make absolutely sure that they say something that will put them in a good place in the company. I don't know. The thing that I always tell people is, you know, I'm not someone who seeks recognition. I'm a quiet person. You know, I don't seem that remarkable when people meet me. And yet I've had, you know, huge success. I've had jobs people would kill for, you know, I manage, you know, tens of thousands of people. It's, you know, so, so I do have this kind of belief that, you know, maybe in the short term, and I can remember this in my thirties thinking that guy's no good. I'm better than him. Um, you know, but then eventually, you know, people figure it out. And, you know, you, you will get to a point where you will be given the role on merit. Now, as far as, as women go, I think, well, you know, well, you know, if we're going to talk stereotypes, I'll go ahead and I'll talk one. And this is one I talk to them to all about all the time is, you know, just have just have a go <laughs> that, you know, men, you know, the old famous example of, you know, the job application says you have to speak French and 75 men apply and no women apply because they don't speak French, but then none of the men speak French. And so there is this sort of, you know, have a go, put your name forward, you know, get, get, you know, get, get on with it. And I won't tell a story about it today, but, you know, my ending up in the UK, my ending up in three different companies and three different careers is all about you know, taking a chance and taking opportunities when they come because they don't come by again. So people think, well, I'll just wait. And so I think, you know, rather than worried about the showing the work for the meeting and all that stuff, that's all fine. Just do your best job. But then when you see opportunities, people just, you know, you really need to go for them because um, there's never that perfect time. There's never that perfect moment um, and put, put your name forward. And then sometimes that's the best thing when you don't get it. Cause then you can say, tell me why I didn't get it. And then you can have a really good, honest discussion about why you should have got it. And then yes. next time we'll get it. Yes. And, and I think your point there about saying, well, yeah, I'm not sure whether, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I am somebody who doesn't seek recognition and I've done really well. So that does actually speak to everything you need to, it, everything you need to say. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's weird. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does work. And then, you know, I think you, you have to, as I've learned in my career now, and I think people, you know, have to make their own choices. Um, be careful about where you work. Think about the stakeholders, you know, think, think about, you know, is the type of culture, if you're not going to own it, like I can own our culture, then is that what you want to be a part of? Um, and, um, you know, you can really uh, be successful um, and do a great thing. But if you're in the wrong culture, um, it starts to feel uncomfortable after a while. Even if you're, doing, you know, for you know, many times I've been an island to myself in a company, like doing many great things. And, you know, but, you know, if, if you're not the one calling this, if you're not the board, if you're not, you know, the person who controls the shares, then um, just think about whether it's the right place um, and, you know, kind of. That's another moment to get on with it. <laughs> if it isn't the right place, find place that is. And of course, I think, I think the last figures, I was just writing a post about this, 4.3 million people re resigned in March. Mm. Yeah. So people are voting with their feet yeah. and going, I don't well, like this culture. I don't feel good here. I'm going to find somewhere else that I do. I hate the term work-life balance. I always tell people that, you know, because work is so important part of life and, you know, they're not, they're not competing and it's not a fulcrum, you know, it's life. And life is full of passions and, you know, work needs to be one of them. And if you find yourself in a role and I, look, I act like I have all the answers. I found myself in a role once where I didn't realize it at the time, but I look back on it and, and remember thinking, oh, the bus is late. <laughs> so I don't want to go. Um, if you find yourself in something like that, you just need to think about, you know, it's not going to all be rainbows and unicorns, but is this where I want to be? You know, if I want someplace else, if I took a chance, 
maybe I go laterally and, you know, and I learn something different, but, you know, in the long run, will I be in a better place? Um, yeah, those are the types of things. I hope people in this great resignation, this is what I hope they're thinking about what they're doing. Absolutely right. And I hope the leaders respond to that in the right way and realize yeah. that, oh my goodness, culture <laughs> is a business imperative. Who knew? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love your first story. And it's a tip that I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about over the next couple of days. What's your story number two? Okay. Well, like a lot of people, you know, when you're young, you think you know everything, don't you? And, and especially when you're someone who had some academic success like me and my career was going well. And I got myself to a point at, um, at MBA where I was chief marketing officer for Europe. And um, I was, you know, thinking I, I knew everything. And, you know, I would get up and I would do these presentations. And anyway, eventually uh, a friend of mine came to me and said, look, we're going to do some media training with you. And I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, in case the press comes along. But, you know, it was a lot more than that. And, and I went um, to someone named Richard Phillips, who's, who's very talented in, in this sort of arena. And uh, the first thing he did, which was very uncomfortable, which was, was have him sort of record me. And then uh, you had to watch it. And, you know, it's very painful to do. Even if you think you're an accomplished communicator, it is just really difficult to watch yourself. And back then, especially, I think, you know, so I gave him a presentation that I'd just given to hundreds of people and I was all full of myself. It was all very important business stuff and slides and blah, blah, blah. And um, he said to me, okay, that was interesting. He said, I don't think we need to watch it. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, well, you know, why not? And, and he just said, well, you, you are, you know, you're someone I, who I've met, who I know, you know, you, you're funny, you're warm, you're caring, you're mischievous. You got a great sense of humor, you know, all these things. He said, and none of that was in what I just saw. He said, absolutely none of it. And he said, well, what I think you're trying to do is do an impression of what you think a chief marketing officer of a big company is. And that's what you're trying to be. And he says, and no one will connect with you and no one will understand you. And it just makes, you know, it makes no sense. You know, you need, you need to do more of being yourself. I talked about how I'm an introvert, how I'm shy. This is really the beginning of me doing stories because he said, look, if you tell a true story, it'd be easy for you to, to get up there and get going. And then after three or four minutes, you'll be comfortable and you know your, your hands will come up and everything will work fine for you. And um, it's weird because that was advice about giving a presentation. And it was really just about you know bringing yourself to work, which is a phrase people like to use. But for me, I really took it to heart and... Um, even though I'd had a lot of success at that moment, that was the moment when my career really switched into higher gear and I started to be a lot more effective um, and, and a bigger influence on culture and a, you know, a bigger influence across the business. Um, and it was just me being me. And so, you know, sometimes you get advice that's very specific, but you can take that advice and just actually say, well, if that work in a presentation, Will that work in a meeting? Will that work someplace else? Will that, you know, is that, and it sounds stupid to just be yourself, but I think a lot of people as part of doing their job pretend to be what they think that person doing that job is supposed to be. But if they were actually, actually just more like themselves, they'd be more effective. And then maybe they wouldn't even be in that job. They'd be in another job once someone saw how effective they were or, you know, everything else they were bringing to the table. So that's my second um, my second story is just, you know, how horrible a presenter I was. <laughs> and I was told to just be a bit more myself. I was told about a, uh, a little while ago, 
somebody said, could you be a little bit less like yourself? Because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very tigger and I'm very positive and I make silly comments all the time and I don't necessarily always think through what I say and I definitely don't play professional. I stopped playing professional some time ago. And I suppose that in itself is a, an indication of the culture. So I'm wondering that now as a leader, now that you've made it to the top, you know, to the top position, as it were, the culture maker, how do you make sure that the people inside your organization can be 100% themselves? The easiest thing I can do, because I've got quite platform, don't I? So, you know, I can be myself and I can, I can, you know, I can do that. I can be a bit mischievous and I can, I can do things that, you know, one of my core words, which um, I can't remember if it was in yours or not, for me in, in a culture is fun. Um, and that, you know, people need to laugh and have fun. And um, I, in the same conversation with Richard that day, he told me that, you know, it's okay in the most serious of business circumstances to make people laugh. He said, he said, it's really, really effective. And that even in, you know, they won't think you're less of a serious businessman if you can make them laugh while you're telling them something important. And I've sort of never forgotten that. And the whole idea that you work hard and play hard, you know, those are like, you know, cat poster kind of things. But I do think it's true. And I would do silly things, you know, when I was CEO at HomeServe, like we had a giant call center with 800 people in it. And uh, my office was, was in one corner of it. It wasn't an office, it's just my desk, basically. But I would, uh, I had a bike. And, you know, when I had to take something to the other side, I would ride my bike across the call center. And, um, <laughs> and it would just make people laugh and they would think it was ridiculous. And, you know, and, and, but I, you know, I would, when someone sort of questioned me about it, I was like, no, it's, I'm doing it very intentionally. It is, you know, I want people to know that, you know, I work hard, I'm in early, I do my job, where, you know, the company's being run well, but also, you know, why not have a bit of fun when I'm going across there? Uh, if I'm going to drop something off, I'll just, just ride my bike with my little bell. And, um, you know, that's just a small example, but you can do those, you can do those kinds of things. And then, you know, in our internal social media network at the uh, company I work at now, we, we happen to use Yammer. Um, you know, I, I do lots of, you know, I've made sure that people know, you know, there's, there's nothing off limits and you can put gifts in there and you can use real language and you can, um, you know, just be yourself. I do think it, it takes a while and then people are like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then you see a few, it's very weird how it happens, especially in that type of social media in the company. You see a, a few people get it and they might not be the most senior people or they might be someone you never heard of, but all of a sudden you know them and they get it and they're doing it and they're sort of praising people and they're putting lots of things out there. And, um, you know, it, it just happens, you know, it's weird. And then we're at a point now where it started small when I joined seven months ago and I said, I want to turn this on. And they were like, okay. And then I said, it's really important that the executives get involved in this and that we, you know, comment on it. And now we're at the stage now where I was, I was traveling. I said, I was in a car for a long time and I was just sitting there going, I couldn't get through it all. You know, there's so, so many people sharing pictures of things they're proud of, um, you know, and, and, and it's just kind of, you know, me supporting it lets people know that it's okay so that's you know that's one small example because we don't have a lot of time but you you know you 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 can from my platform if i think being yourself and being fun and so you know i've got my penn state shirt on you know i'm an american i've lived here a long time i'm very proud to be a british citizen but i still have my passions and i let people you know know what they are because i want them to know that it's okay if i see someone raising money inside the company for any calls you know i'll give a small donation because I want all those other people who thought it was appropriate for them to share that 
to know, uh-oh, the CEO thinks it's appropriate. So maybe it is. And all the time I tell people, if you don't like something, just scroll past it or don't look at it or ignore it. You know, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> someone, someone wants to raise money and they're running, they're running a race or walking or doing whatever they're doing. That's lovely. Yeah. Let them do it. If you don't like it, then just go on. <laughs> so you're talking there about a number of things. One of them is about leading by example, which is, you know, it's the one thing that people get wrong. I go in so many companies where uh, the board say, we want the company to be more like this. And then when, it, when you delve deeper under the hood, you realize, well, they're not behaving. You're not behaving like this. So why would you expect them to? And the yeah. second thing that resonates with from what you're saying about some people, and they're probably not leaders, start to respond to that more quickly than other people. Those people are the most important people in your organization. They're your change makers. They're your first adopters. And yeah. it's by harnessing the power of them that people around them go, oh, well, if it's okay for them, then it's okay for me. And, and then you get the ripple effect of change. Love that story. Great. <laughs> what is your story number three? So my story number three is, is one of those things. And I guess it's, it's about, you know, how important it is to be you know, a mentor or a sponsor for someone or just to be an effective leader for someone. So when I was um, back at MBA, when I was early in my career and I was you know, pretty successful, I think I was, it was my first, um, I'd escaped from finance. I love finance, but I, I jumped over the fence from finance and I jumped into marketing, which I didn't know anything about. I thought it was a curious choice they'd made, but either way, I was doing it. And I got called into my boss's office, a guy named Hugh Chater, who works for Virgin Money now. And um, back in these days, it was a bank, you know, so it was a huge office with a big, big, gigantic antique desks, oil paintings everywhere, uh, wingback chairs, you know, so I sort of sat down in front of him. My first sort of you know, he was, he was on the board. So it was a very serious meeting for me. And I was used to sort of these managers who, um, you know, when, when you would have a meeting like that, it was about your job it was about tasks. And it was like, how's the report coming? What's the thing doing and all that. And so he just started in a very different way. He started out um, saying, you know, well, you know, how are you feeling about the job? How's the family, you know, and all that. And I was like, oh, this is nice, you know, which is more like I feel comfortable with. And then he said to me, um, what do you need to be in that office? And he pointed through the wall behind him and that was the CEO's office. And I was shocked. I had never really, I was a really quiet, you know, nerdy type person. I had never seen myself as a CEO and I, I didn't even know what to say. And it was just such an outlandish question. And then I sort of said, what me, you know? And he said, yeah, you know, you basically, you've got the values, you've got the intellect people like you, you know, I think you could be a great CEO someday. So I just want to know what you think you need to be a great CEO. And it was just such an amazing question to me. And I said to him, well, uh, you know, the biggest team I've ever managed is 90 people. So I might need sometime, you know, some operational experience or something like that. I said, but, you know, I obviously I know the PL and, you know, I know strategy and all that. So I was really excited by this. And it was a great conversation. And then, you know, I went away and was really sort of uh, first time in my life thinking, okay, could I be a CEO? Wow, that could be exciting. And um, then the next day he called me in and he said, um, I heard what you said about the operational stuff. Um, I'd like you to take over the sales call center uh, and add that to your existing responsibilities. And now you have 1,500 people working for you. And, um, wow. and he said, I don't think you'll think it's a problem, but, you know, now we can cross that one off your list. And 
yeah, it was a great experience. And it did, you know, it did give me a lot more confidence in the latter part of my career when, you know, sort of big operational roles and things like that came up. I could say, oh, when, you know, I had this role at that time. So when I tell people this story, I just tell them, you know, sometimes you see things in people um, and they don't see it in themselves. And maybe you're in a better spot to see it because you, you know, have more experience, you know that. And you can sort of say to them, you know, what do you need to do this? Or, you know, what, what do you want, you know, to make this happen? And it doesn't have to be like the CEO, you know, there, you know, I have taken people from one discipline and put them in another and said, trust me, you're going to be really good at this. I can tell, you know, and then I love it when they come back years later and say, you know, you're so amazing that you did that. And it's, you know, it's really changed my career, my trajectory and all that. And so I just think as managers, and you know this, and every, everyone kind of, when you get to our roles in life, you know that, you know, it's not about tasks and it's not about what are you getting done this week and all that. And that these discussions and these moments and these times you have with people are, are really, really important. And it's really, really, you know, if you, if you can, help them become better, then that's what your job's all about. And you know, what I tell my group is, you know, we're, we're done working on Greg. Greg's going to be what Greg is now at 52 years old, but there's 10,000 people in this company. And if I could get 1% out of each and every one of them more, then that's way more than we could ever get out of Greg Reed. And, you know, and that's sort of what my objective is. And that's what my story is about is sort of that question that Hugh asked me, which was, what do you need to, and for me, it was to be CEO, but it could be any old question for someone who's working for you. Um, and just find out what that little insecurity they have is. And then also maybe by asking that question, you let them in on a little secret about something, you know, some capabilities they have or, or something you see in them that they don't see in themselves yet. Brilliant. And what a leader, that guy. What was the guy's name again? His name is Hugh Chater. So he's really, he's one of these humble leaders. He's really important to me. And I've got a couple other stories. Sometimes we have more time that I could go through about Hugh. Um, but he would be funny because if I said that, he'd be like, oh, you didn't need me. You know, he's, he's one of those, you know, beautiful. You're, you're your own uh, thing. But yeah, now really, really important person to me. And someone who I think as a leader really was the first person. This is not to, you know, downplay any of my previous bosses, but the first person who really took it to leadership to, to a new level with me um, and, and really helped me be the best that I could be or at least shoot for it or go for it or put that little, you know, once it's in your head, then you start thinking. I'm a big runner. So, you know, every morning when I was running, I was like, oh, see, yeah, how could I do that? <laughs> well, you know, it's brilliant, isn't it? That one comment by that one guy has an impact on the rest of your life. And as a leader, you just need to be so aware that you can do that to every single person every day in yes. some little way, just yeah. put a seed in their mind about potential. Yeah. There was one person when I left my last role, uh, they sent me an email and they said, three times you made an impact on me. And I didn't remember any of the three times, but I did remember them once I read them and I just thought, oh, wow, okay, that's good. I'm glad I did that. <laughs> but uh, Amazing. You can, you can do these things. People are the most important thing. You know, that's the whole point of this, uh, this podcast. But um, yeah, it is, you know, I think any leaders who, um, you know, are trying to be successful, particularly if they're involved with, you know, big customer bases, then, you know, they need to be very, very cognizant about other people and, and the messages they're giving. Absolutely brilliant three stories. I knew there would be. Sophie said you're a brilliant storyteller. You told me that you use stories. I've loved everything that you've said, and it's resonated on so many levels. So the very last thing we have to ask you before 
we depart from each other, and I'm sad to do so because I could carry on listening to you for a very long time. What would you like to call your episode of Humans Leading Humans? Oh, um, you know what? This is strange because I do have a story about this, but I didn't tell it. Um, but you'll probably figure it out from what I've said. So my, my, one of my main sort of mantras that I go on and on and on about, um, and I do get this repeated back to me, is everyone is important. And I, I do really mean that, um, you know, when, when you're a leader and, and you're managing people and you're paying people, uh, no one in the company is unimportant. Every single person is important. They need to know what you're there to do, how they fit into it. And, and when I say this, people will say, oh, but I, I answer phones and retention and you're the CEO. And I just say, we just have different jobs. We're both important. And you're just as important as I am. And you need to think you need to make sure that you can do your job effectively. And so I think everyone is important is what I would call it. And if you ever have me back, I'll tell my everyone is important story. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And it's something that, you know, I think that, again, it's too easy to forget that actually you're only as strong as your weakest link. So make damn sure you're looking after that weakest link. I've loved today. Thank you so much, Greg, for your time, your energy, your expertise. Um, and I will invite you back at a later stage. Thank okay. you. All right, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Oh my goodness. I absolutely loved that, those, that conversation. And everyone is important. What a great title. And it's a simple truth that so many companies don't yet realize. Vint Cerf talked about this in his episode of Humans Leading Humans. If everyone feels that they own a brick of the cathedral, they will be absolutely 100% with you on your journey to success. Um, what, a, what a pleasure. It's so important what bubbled up to me, the things that bubbled up to talk about how people feel. Dan Ariely talked about this a lot in his episode of Humans Leading Humans. In, even in the last six months, I've worked with a couple of companies who are deeply skeptical and uncomfortable about talking about how people feel and they avoid it. But the truth is, the unavoidable truth is that how your people feel is absolutely pivotal to whether they are productive, whether they're efficient. All of the leaders I'm talking to at the moment are wanting to embed growth mindset. And that growth mindset, the bravery, the innovation, the courage of being able to make improvements, to speak up, is all to do with the way that people feel. So don't be avoiding that because it's, it's listening and, and being empathetic and actually really giving people the opportunity to talk about how they feel is the thing that will help you be more successful, simples. Um, so what else? I love Greg's advice. Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because you're seeking um, some sort of validation or reward or, or, or respect for that. And just do it because it's the right thing to do. I just love that. And there are so many companies that don't do that, where people are constantly clamoring for reward and recognition. Um, or even worse than that, where people are accepting recognition and reward for other people's work. 
But it's like Sarah Benison said in her episode of Humans Leading Humans. If you behave badly to an individual, they will remember that. Don't be a dick and you'll end up in the best place because people remember when people behave badly. So do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. What else? Oh, yeah, fun is not diametrically opposed to work. If you want something done, make it fun. And don't just say it, do it. Because as a leader, you set the scene. It's okay to be mischievous. It's okay to have a giggle. Be yourself, because if you do, they can. It's really simple. Change agents will adopt your behaviors first and then the people around them. Because remember, we are herd creatures. So behaviors spread like wildfire. So if you're fun and light and caring and selfless, so will your culture be. Simple. And the last thing before I sign off, and thank you again for being with me on this journey, are you like Greg's boss? Do you set the seed for other people's success? Do you dare them to dream about what they could be? Do you spark the seed of success for other people? Because if you don't, I suggest you start today. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards the future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. So if you haven't joined up to their fantastic network of marketing leaders, get over to their website and to sign up now. A massive, massive thanks to the fantastic Super Terrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to We Are Beep to find out more about the Create framework. You could do worse than doing a Create Culture audit yourself because if you stare where you are right in the face, then you can start to make progress and track it. And if you want to know how we unlock the problem-solving potential of leaders to build cultures where people love to work and want to stay, get in touch. Cats at wearebeep.com. If you loved this week's episode, please pass it on to any friends and colleagues you think might need a shot of courage or inspiration. Better still, if you're unlucky enough to have a boss who does not understand how to create environments in which humans thrive, pass this on to them. Thank you so much for joining me. Please subscribe. The links are in the notes. Be inspired. Be imaginal. Be more human. And I look forward to seeing you next time.